Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp. And I'm Jeffrey Roach. Welcome to Microdosing, where we look at small specific things, such as a product, business, or person, that represents a bigger trend in healthcare. In this series, we'll be focused on the healthcare labor shortage, and I'm excited to team up with Jeffrey, who's a prominent leader when it comes to all things people in healthcare. Thanks, Paul. And some say it's not just a labor shortage, but also a healthcare labor crisis. In this series, we have a lot of wonderful conversations lined up that gets at exactly why this isn't just a labor issue, but rather a multi-dimensional one around employee experience, digitization of workflows, and new business models to make healthcare workers' lives better, healthcare companies more stable, and ultimately deliver better quality of care to all patients. We hope you enjoy. Hi, today Jeffrey and I are joined by Hillary Miller. She is the Chief Learning Officer of Penn State Health. Hillary, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's hear your two-minute Hillary. Oh, all right. Well, I always like to start with a personal message of I'm a woman, and I'm a Basset Hound mom of three. I'm a motorcycle rider. I'm an avid reader. I have an unhealthy obsession with coffee, especially local blends. And then who I am in my role with being a chief learning officer is really around all the things that we're doing to help grow develop, create pathways and access, not only for our employees, but also how do we connect with the wider community in central Pennsylvania. So it's really great to be here and thanks for having me. Hillary, I always love to hear the human connection, obviously, uh, and is so important in healthcare. Um, You know, we're talking about a crisis and I want to get your sense when we look at workforce, when we look at culture, when we look at education in healthcare, how are you and how would you even say Penn State Health is framing the issue? One is is this is extending well beyond industry. And so we are seeing this show up in everything from healthcare to private business to B2B, consumer to consumer. It's just, it's tricky right now. But when we're thinking about healthcare, it's a really complex environment to begin with. In healthcare, we have a highly matrixed organization in which we have to be able to partner across multiple areas where you may not directly report into that structure. And then on top of it, we have market conditions that have changed significantly, and it's forcing healthcare to really look at, gosh, the way that we did things before may no longer fit. And so how do we look at redesign? How do we look at rework? How do we look at what people are telling us because they're asking for things that maybe they didn't before, flexibility in their work, flexibility in their schedule. So the workforce crisis, I don't believe is new. It has just been emphasized through what we went through with the pandemic, which no nobody was equipped or prepared to go through. As we begin to better understand this issue, there are some things where people are repeating stats or stating the obvious, but it just feels that we're either don't have an understanding of the problem, we're viewing it wrong, or we're addressing it wrong. But but what do you think are some of the myths or incorrect questions we're asking about this? Yeah, so one is data. It is really easy to cherry pick data and manipulate that information to conform to a story. We're actually all being challenged to say, what is the story? What is the data actually telling us? Because data is just a point to help us infer and make decisions around. It isn't necessarily always the driver. And so across industries, we have to shift the requirements for what's actually needed. 
you know, mm-hmm. if it's entry level, are the requirements and criteria that we had before, uh, do they make sense now? Probably not. I mean, we're asking for degrees in places where we can skill and also figuring out what are the attitudes and the willingness of the folks. We've had marginalized groups for a long time, regardless of industry, mm-hmm. that have not had access to an entry-level job because we made the stipulations too tough because we mm-hmm. thought we had to have a degree associated with it. Now, I don't. I want to be careful. There are some positions that have a requirement for that. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's through regulatory bodies or not. But on the whole, when we're bringing you into an organization in a starter career, or it could be your landing spot, that's really in the choice of the employee. Yeah. We have to be really radically look at why are we saying that this is needed when in yeah. fact we might be able to bring people in who have been dying for the opportunity who never had the opportunity to begin with. Yeah. And I want to go about an earlier point, which is this making sure that we're looking at data, which I think we would all agree is correct and responsible. Do you think healthcare leaders are looking so much at the data that they're dehumanizing the issue? Oh, that's a complex question uh, that I don't think I could give a generalized statement on. So one, I think it's highly dependent on the organization. And it's having really clear criteria. And I think this is never a, we've arrived. It's what can we do better? And so I think you have to be careful with not using data as the only thing that you're looking at. It is a part of the larger narrative. When we think about EEO data, when we think about turnover data, when we think about equity and pay, when we think about really what are the conditions of your regional area. It also matters the demographics and the populations in which you serve, which looks radically different. So the data you use might be different. But I I think you do have to be careful in not using data as the only source, but also having a variety of sources. In our organization, we have first, second, and third party data. First is whatever's in your immediate department. Second is what's available to us across the organization. And then third, what do we have from a vendor and what do we have from our regions? And that's all really helpful in in painting a picture of what does this whole thing look like? And then how do people fit into that? And what are the decisions that we need to make based off of those trends? I also believe, Paul, that you have to be careful not to do point in time. Uh You have to be able to look at this longitudinally. Yeah. The other piece I'd I'd like to follow up on is... Usually when we think about learning, learning and development, there's an assumption that we're making that there's a career aspiration. And usually in that room, when people are thinking about this topic, we usually have aspiring individuals. We'll have healthcare executives that are there because they're aspiring careerists. You might have some third-party fee people like myself in there that tend to be ambitious. And I know the answer is going to be both, but there's going to be people that are looking to build their career in healthcare. And I imagine there's a pretty big cohort that just wants a really great job in healthcare that doesn't suck. And I would love to get your thoughts on how we think about workforce or workplace satisfaction that may or may not be intersecting with career ambition. Mm, That's a really great question. So one for me, you have to get really clear on what's needed within your organization and how those things are defined. So a lot of the times in learning development, we have this broad brush of, oh, it's cultivating people and 
helping them in their career pathways. Well, there's a really big difference between training someone for the job that they're in, for the skills that they have to be able to immediately apply, a development pathway in which the individual has to want to engage in. These, you can't make somebody do something. You can only provide the environment in which uh, they might see value in that. And third is, do we have mobility? And so I flip the workforce development to, are we looking at this from a mobility standpoint? Is it more important to us that we retain these awesome people in our organization rather than just the department in which they sit? And so you have to get really clear on those definitions, and that can look completely different per institution, per industry, per organization. And it's okay that how you define learning culture is different from how another organization does because you're, you're created with a diverse population and there has to be clarity and expectation. And the one thing I love about Brene Brown, and I always bring her into my conversations in some way, is that clarity is the kindest thing that we can do. So it is not saying, hey, here's this massive catalog, go figure it out. It's what are the options that you have that you get to be a part of in the selection process. And then we're also going to help show you uh, where are areas that you can develop in that are valuable to you, but also are helping to promote the needs within our organization. Hillary, um, one of the things that I know you and I have talked a lot about uh, and, in, and in many ways, you know, you, in your title may be chief learning officer, but I often would say for you, it's also chief listening officer uh, because you have been always a big proponent of active intentional listening. When we talk about an issue like the workforce, it doesn't matter what statistic you look at, whether it's the Elsevier report that specifically highlighted 47% of individuals are considering leaving healthcare by 2025. When you dig in, a lot of times the feedback is on culture. Uh, on the fact that they weren't listened to, on the fact that we have burnout, uh, yet all these issues have been there and they don't feel as if anything's been done about it. I want to ask you, when you look at the work you do, what would you say to help solve what, what many would say is also a crisis of listening in healthcare? Yeah. Oh, again, all these great questions that I don't have a singular uh, solution for, but the way that I approach this, which is the only thing really I can share, is one, if you're working to help the people in the organization, you have got to listen to the folks who are in that day-to-day -day job. Two populations that come to mind, the immediate individual contributors, which could range from a nurse to somebody in cybersecurity to an environmental specialist in uh, nutrition services to those who are sitting in leadership. But at the end of the day, the consumer, which is our employees, um, are the people that we really have to listen to. And there's a balance with that. Somebody may not know um, what a great learning experience looks like, so let's show them. But two, more importantly, how's that behaviorally showing up? Um, and so listening does a lot of things. One is it's not assuming that you know everything just because your title indicates that. My job is really an advocacy support and helping to bridge teams together because when you are in a complex environment, it's more of how do we move in a shared direction where we're not minimizing the individuality diversity component of our folks. And so how, do we have enough of a shared framework to be able to work together? But where listening plays a piece in that 
is it's checking ego at the door to say what is the best thing, not I should be providing that because I sit in this seat within the organization. That's a great observation because I think so much of the healthcare provider culture is being rewarded for what you know versus how well you're listening, which is a great framing. I'd love to move to our three last questions, kind of the three magic questions. But if we could go back 10 years or however long we want to go and, and you could change one thing, what might that be? Oh, Jeffrey knows this about me. I'm so terrible at being like, I have to pick just one. <laughs> but if, if I really need to pick just one um, is career mobility. So for the longest time, it was you can only take this path. If you're really great at your job as an individual contributor, you must be in leadership. That's not necessarily true. People might be great at their craft and have no interest in having people in their care on top of it. And so we have to be able to to be okay with that because we want folks in the right seat that actually want to be there for the right reasons. But it also helps us in the engagement and helping them. It also helps with inclusion. So helping folks to see that, hey, I may have started out in project management. Now I'm in um, information services. Now I've recognized that I've cultivated this skill set in innovation and strategy. Uh, What a beautiful thing, because I know it feels super risky. Um, And I think we've become so comfortable with you have to have this clear path because that's my comfort area, rather than saying, Again, back to the organizational statement of we've got these people with these great attitudes, an outstanding set of skills. It's more important that we maintain them and allow them to move around and bring that expertise into other areas than maintain them in a department where Mm -hmm. they've lost their growth capability. I love that that linear point. I've got a colleague that, that does a podcast on marketing careers. He's done a lot of them. And we ask him what he's learned most. And he goes, all my conversations, when I talk to where that person is now, they're kind of midway on the ladder, where they are was unplanned. Most careers aren't linear and planned. I think that's a great point. Hillary, obviously, you have a lot of thoughts as a healthcare thought leader. And a lot of people pay a lot of attention to those thoughts. I'm curious, from your perspective, if there was one action that you feel that you would share that everyone should really listen to, what would it be? Oh, and it's the one that gets missed a lot, right? Is the connection between the current workforce and the organization's financial health. And we don't think about those things sometimes because we say, gosh, that's the finance department's job. Well, when we have a shared understanding and it's Mm -hmm. not just money costs, it is what's the expenditure of time? What are the relationships? So how are we prioritizing energy and effort? Are we clear on what it is that we're trying to do? So I think this is across industries where it's, one, it seems intimidating. Like, oh my gosh, I have to know all the finances within my area. Well, we need to do a better job in making that consumable for folks, but also that they're a part of that story. This is where data comes back in. We have to be able to forecast using that information, but it also allows us to flex and redesign and rework where we need to because the model that we had doesn't fit any longer. And so that's where it's seeing it as an opportunity through these 
uh, data points rather than, oh my gosh, you're changing the world as I knew it. That's helping people too through having a shared understanding of finances, um, developing some change agility. If we are optimistic uh, about this challenge, what, what would 2033 look like? Oh, so I'm always optimistic. Uh, challenges are always opportunities. It also means that this is where listening right now is critical. We do not have an option but to listen and to sit down with our providers, to sit down with our nurses, to sit down with our staff. Uh, and this is not accommodating every single women need of everyone. It is to say on the collective, if we made these decisions right now, and it's not gonna be a perfect model, this would set us up for folks, one, wanting to be in our environment, two, promoting the beauty of healthcare this health sciences is such a critical space, but it's also letting people know uh, what healthcare actually is comprised of. If I go to talk with somebody who is not a part of healthcare, they're shocked to know all of the roles that make up a healthcare system because we're often only thinking about those front-facing clinical roles, not revenue cycle services or patient experience. And so I'm very optimistic because I think we have to be. If we succumb to the fact that we've got major challenges, we stop being innovative. And so my ask really of all of us, and it's really hard, there are days where I'm like, oh, we're never gonna figure this out. But I leave it in that day, and I start the next day saying, okay, what can we do about this? And that doesn't have to be big bang. This can be done in increments. The more important part is that we're moving in a shared direction to say we care about this enough that we need to start making some changes right now. That's fantastic. Those are great points. And, and again, love the relentless optimism. Um, it's going to be interesting as we go through the series and have these short conversations about this big topic um, to, to not keep it going. But Hillary, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your schedule to sit down, share your stories, share your perspectives. And for the listeners out there, what I love about Hillary is She's quite active on LinkedIn. So if you want to keep absorbing some of these perspectives, look up Hillary Miller at Penn State Health and you can follow her feeds. They are engaging, entertaining, and, and fun, dare I say it. So thank you for uh, your, being such a vocal and active participant in this conversation globally. And thank you for your time. Oh, you bet. Thanks, Paul and Jeffrey. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Microdosing. If you'd like more content like this, go to our website at md-pod.com and that will triage you to all the common podcast platforms and social media pages to follow us. Until next time, cheers.